awesome nerds, it is D&D and TV time. Uh, welcome to this week's episode where we are talking about Invincible, the Amazon hit series based on the graphic novels by Robert Kirkman, Ryan Odley and Corey Walker. I am joined by my co-host for this series, the amazing Twitch streamer, Dr. Chops. Mike, how you going, mate? Hello, nerd and nerds. Very happy to be here. Very happy to talk about this fantastic show and the possible and potential fantastic applications in tabletop role-playing games. Yeah, because that's what this this show is all about. Talking about episodes of television that we love, series that we love, and how you can use ideas from them in role-playing games, specifically D&D, but other ones available as well once we get into the nitty-gritty. Because there's a... Well, if you know Invincible, um, if you've watched Invincible now, you know it's all about superheroes. And there are a number of superhero role-playing games, but that's not really what we're going to talk about. Since this is kind of the first episode we're ever going to have, we don't have much news to talk about. Um, although, uh, Mike, hey, if you want to plug your, your Twitch stream now, we can we can do it now and not do it at the end. Most absolutely. You can find me most regularly on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday nights at approximately 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time at twitch.tv forward slash doctor underscore chops. That's D-R underscore chops. And highly worthwhile mentioning right now, mega, mega spoilers ahead for the Invincible series. Oh yeah, we are not going to be holding back. Uh, In future episodes for other series, we might have spoilers, but no, Invincible, you, the big reveal comes at the end of the first episode, right? It sure does. It sets the tone and um, it does a very good mix of giving you an idea of what to expect but also giving you that for, for anyone that hasn't read the comics and I'm in the position of not having read the comics. So I can't even bring that perspective. Yeah, but I have. So, so. Uh, yep. And it, so it really fantastically sets the tone for how, what to expect and also kind of makes a scratch your head and wonder what to expect at the same time. Oh yeah, it really does. I knowing I've read a number of the volumes. I'm probably up to about volume 12 or so in the comics before I was like, oh, this is heavy. I, I can't take too much more of this. I need a break. And I just never picked them up again, which isn't to say they're amazing. Not amazing. It is, they lay the seeds, even in this short eight episode run. It is really well done what they've done with it. Um, that being said, we're not going to spoil any of the comics. I'm going to keep all that stuff to myself. Uh, so if you're commenting on this episode, if you're talking about it on on uh, Twitter and Instagram, which you can find us dndntv pod, uh, that's at on Instagram and Twitter. Please don't spoil it for anyone else. It's that surprise from the first episode. It's the red wedding stuff. We don't want to ruin it for everyone. Certainly not. But without further ado, let's get into this first episode, which was in. Well, appropriately, uh, entitled It's About Time. It's About Time. Now, this episode, directed by Robert Valley and Jeff Allen, and the screenplay is actually by Robert Kirkman. And, I don't know, we won't get too into the whole, this is what screenwriters do, this is what directors do. I feel we're just going to talk about the plot and kind of the, the imagery a lot of the time. We're going to assume everyone's kind of seen the episode before before going into it as well, so as we kind of go through the events of it. I love the opening 
for this episode with the the White House attack from the Mauler twins. It's got these two security guards starting out talking about their one of them, his stepson and all the stuff that he's gone through and how they've like formed this bond. And then in the middle of like the conversation, the ground opens up and these two massive 10 foot tall, bald blue dudes with massive guns to massive guns in the sense of biceps and also massive auto cannons that they're hauling around pop up out of the ground and just start wailing away on each other on on the on the white house i fucking love it oh yeah and swearing we're going to be swearing a lot uh, i feel if you've been watching invincible <laughs> you're okay with violence and swearing i think that it's also um a, a strong scene uh as intended by the creators because this is a superhero cartoon. Yeah. And through all the decades now, um, almost a century of, you know, superhero comics and superhero cartoons and uh, Marvel and DC and Disney and Hanna-Barbera and all these different kind of kind of companies that produce superhero um, or superhero-themed content, uh, we, we definitely go in with an expectation of, Superheroes are forces for good and justice and everything that is uh, meant to be right and fair. And um, this opening scene uh, reinforces that expectation or that stereotype. Uh, the the bad guys show up at a uh, at a location. They begin to attack and uh, begin to look to kill a bunch. Of, they're trying to kill the president, but along the way there, they're also looking to kill. A bunch of innocent, um, you know, people that work at the White House, and uh, a bunch of soldiers and uh, military policemen that are there to defend it. And then the heroes show up, you know, the guardians of the globe. Mm-hmm. So they show up, and they're bright, they're colourful, um, you know, they're they're deep and strong voiced, all of them, and they all got these fantastic superpowers. They mm-hmm. they they're most definitely not the Justice League. Is is my first point. <laughs> even though they're incredible XPs of all the Justice League, but they're also voiced by these amazing actors. Every single one of these characters is, yeah, this is a Justice League cast that they've got in for um, for the heroes of the piece. And I think it's really fascinating that this scene isn't in the comics. It's not, is it? No, the Mauler twins are introduced and, and we see like a couple of the heroes, but we don't get to meet the entire Guardians team until like much later it's just like oh yeah and the guardians of the globe exist so i love that it does like you were saying set up this expectation of this is a superhero universe where the heroes will show up and they will get the civilians out of danger before they really go to town on the on the villains Mm -hmm. and then after they've gone to after they've gone to town on the villains they don't kill them no they're gonna Put those criminals away to do their time in jail and pay for their crimes. That's yeah. the that's the American way. It's the American you know? way. And uh it's just it is such a great scene because it sums up what everyone's expecting from this, but it also kind of lays the hints of what's gonna come as well. Because we do see that the heroes are willing to sacrifice themselves. We see Darkwing, the Batman XB, he's willing to get crushed by a tank and gets a, get a, um, a civilian out of danger and give up his life. And that's when he's saved by Omni-Man who comes in. And it's interesting because there's already a Superman XB, the immortal, in in the Guardians. This is a guy who just like, he's super powered. He can fly, he can punch through walls, all this kind of stuff. But then we meet Omni-Man as well 
who has the best mustache in the universe. And I honestly think, I haven't checked this, I feel that, that Robert Kirkman just wanted to have a hero with an awesome mustache. And it's like, yeah, that's my guy now. He's Superman with a mustache. You know, I think there is an established origin story for how Omni-Man got his powers. But I think that in reality, it's the mustache that gives him his powers. <laughs> yeah, I like that. It's like, I just grew the mustache really, really well. And now it all stems from this. It's like Samson and his hair. It's like, no, no, it's my mustache that gives me my energy. Mm-hmm. And talking about uh, Omni-Man's facial hair, watch out for episode two of this podcast because I've got something to say about it there too. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. All right. Very relevant for episode two. <laughs> All, right. All right, we'll tune in next week for more information on uh, Omni-Man's mustache. Yeah, so it, it's, it is very interesting to, um, to hear that uh, this scene was not in the comic books. And uh, that just and that's, that's the first that, uh, first that I've heard it. And the first thought that kind of goes through my mind is that, okay, so it was a very conscious and very deliberate decision by the, uh, by the directors of this cartoon to set these expectations very deliberately because that post credit scene is a very heavy about face, but we'll get to that shortly. Yeah. It's almost like the bookends of the, of the episode though. You have the, I keep wanting to say the justice league, the guardians show up at the end and at the beginning. And then they also show up at the end. And that's kind of, this is what we, we get in this one chapter of the book. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we'll we'll start to to kick through. I think this is a really good way of starting a um, an RPG campaign. However, I, it's a pretty simple one, but you have that almost a session zero or an introduction to all of the the world for a team by having by giving your players all of the power. You have like this level twenty for for Dungeons and Dragons terms, a level twenty group. And being like, yes, you are the heroes of myth, and this is the people you're dealing with. This is the big bad that you've put away once already and has shown up out of nowhere to fight again. And I, I like that idea that you can have this this heavy hitting adventure and get the um, the players used to the world that you're in. So that's kind of where I approach this scene from. That's something I'd like to put into the into my games. Yeah, from another angle. That's a fantastic idea for the people who are experienced with D&D so that going into level 20 is not overwhelming. But at the same time, that also means that this opening scene and the the episode in general also has a lot of special appeal to those of us who are also well experienced in the uh, the comic book and superhero genre, you know, for those of us that have, you know, have read a lot or watched a lot and uh, think that we can go into these things and uh, be able to pick what's going to happen and, you know, think that we're going to be right about it because I was certainly wrong. <laughs> when I got to the, when I got to the <laughs> end of that episode, I was just like, wait, wait a fucking second, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, I do love the end of the episode, basically all these, this massive thing happened. I mean, I love that we're going, yeah, we're going to have spoilers and then we're just going to, we're going to keep it as a surprise for everyone listening. But the, it, they basically go, cool, cut to black credits, mm-hmm. silence. And just lets the audience sit there and stew on what they just witnessed. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful technique when, um, when used appropriately, because it'd be very easy to be, to do it wrong and not have the impact. But when used appropriately, those silent credits after a heavy scene, uh, they, they, they hit, they do. 
but how about that? How, how, how long have we just spent talking about the opening scene and hinting about the oh, uh, yeah. post credits? And we haven't even talked about what the plot is. We haven't even introduced the main character yet. Yeah, we... <laughs> We haven't, even, which it's, it kind of comes in there. So I do want to say one more thing about the opening scene because it does also set up the expectations for this world. That it is this comic book sort of world, and it is a very much a Robert Kirkman idea that reality ensues. That we see the Red Rush, the Flash XB, rescue a lot of um, rescue a lot of civilians and the security guards, and then one of them throws up. And it's that little bit of a thing that, yeah, if you're moving that fast, then you're going to start throwing up and other people will start throwing up because of that. And we do also see one of the Mauler twins gets a bullet to the eye. And even though that their skin is bulletproof, their eyes are this weak part. So we kind of get to see that there are already rules in place. Mm-hmm. Let, let's start to move on. We'll get to, we'll get to our main character, our hero, um, who's introduced to us by reading comics on the toilet. Mm-hmm. which really says a lot about poor Mark Grayson. Now, all through this, I'm going to call them by their family names. Mm-hmm. Like, we're going to meet uh, Omni-Man, who his name is Nolan. I'm going to call him Nolan because this is a family story to me. This whole thing is about family. I'm glad somebody's going to be doing that because I struggle to remember um, identity names. I, I really easily remember <laughs> superhero names. Um, but for, for a lot of... Um, you know, for a lot of non-mainstream characters, I just absolutely 100% struggle to remember their uh, their identity names, though, hey. Yeah. Yeah, the hero names are like, sure, whatever. No, no, it's all going to be um, civilian names, I guess, for this, simply because that's that's easy. Most of the names are puns anyway. And, well, we'll learn that Mark decides to call himself Invincible, which is a dumb as fuck name. Yeah. I mean, I love Mark. He's a... He's a pure cinnamon roll. Well, actually, he's not. He's a douche. <laughs> There's a lot of horrible people in this. But Mark, at this stage, he's just a regular kid. But he is also Omni-Man's kid, which we learn in this scene, that that he comes down from the toilet after his mother busts in um, and says, I haven't seen it. I've seen all of this before. It's not actually a problem. There's just no personal boundaries in this family. But they're more concerned that Nolan is going to be late for breakfast because he's been busy saving the White House than this is actually a concern. Mm-hmm. And we also learn here that Mark kind of wants to be out there too. He's like, when am I going to get my powers? I, I'm your son. I should be having these powers too. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, um, and, and this was something that I found uh, a very, uh, very strong point throughout the first episode is how there is so much less emphasis placed on the main characters struggle to keep their identity secret from their close loved ones, you know, because yeah. I'll admit that's something yeah. that I get a bit sick of. If I'm honest, like, you know, you watch any, any, you know, you watch Gotham, you know, or, um, you watch, uh, green arrow, uh, you watch the flash, you know, Smallville, um, you know, you watch all these shows where the main character, um, has so, has to spend so much time and effort, uh, and, you know, there's so much screen time spent on the, you know, the, the lengths that they go to to keep their superhero activities a secret from their closest and most beloved, most trusted people. But this show just kind of throws yeah. that right out the window. It's just like, of course Omni-Man's wife and child would know who he is. Of course. Of course, yeah. you know, Mark, the son of Omni-Man, when he gets his powers, of course he's going to go to high school. 
and recognize for the first time that one of his, you know, schoolmates is another superhero as well, you know, Adam Eve. You know, and then he's going to go straight up to her in the hallway and just tell her, like, you know, I mean, subtly. So. be like, oh, hey, I know yeah, you. Yeah, and that's okay. I know you, your friend from work. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's it's just so refreshing to me because, like, I mean, you know, that that's one of the tropes of the uh, the superhero genre uh, that I'll admit I'll, I'll, I'll start to get a bit sick of and wish they would dedicate less screen time to is uh, that constant... And you know, draining and never-ending struggle for the uh, for the main character to keep such a powerful and impactful element of their personality or their their lives a secret from the people that they trust the most. You know, makes total sense that they keep it a secret from the wide public, totally. But from the people they trust yeah. the most, that and I'm so happy that this show kind of did away with that. And uh, there's like that small community of people that know and understand uh, these superhero things about the people that they live so closely with. Yeah, I think that is kind of the theme of the show, that you have this chosen family, this this unit that works together, that that's what it's it's kind of talking about. That it is, that it's not this lone vigilante, it's not Batman who ha- will refuse to tell anyone his secret. It's not um, Superman having to be like, well, it's just me, I'm the the last Kryptonian sort of story. It's like, no, no, I'm a hero and I want my son to follow my footsteps and be a hero as well. And my wife knows and we have a group of friends who do these things. And it's just, this is a job for them. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a safety, it's like, well, we're not going to get into Watchmen with the series, but it's that idea of my job is top secret, so I'm not going to tell people around me in case they're in danger, but my family needs to know that there are possible dangers so they, they can be told. I think the the superhero secret identity is actually kind of a sort of a dying trope. Um, more so now, I think that certainly post-Marvel um, cinematic universe... I am Iron Man. <laughs> Yeah, since then they've sort of gone, do we even need a secret identity anymore? And it, what I find is that it's really good for drama. That Spider-Man kind of needs a secret identity because he's a teenager and there's a whole bunch of stuff around that. But it's really good for teen drama because there's that extra level of, well, I've got to lie to you for a reason, which I then can't tell you about. And it just builds on this soap opera style story. Mm. Which when you're dealing... I mean, this is... A little bit soap opera, certainly the book's saga almost level of, of soap opera. But yeah, the the fact that they're not talking about um, secret identities is really a strength of the show that they can. It's not Mark suddenly realizing, oh, I've got powers. Where did these come from? Mm-hmm. It's what's never actually addressed in the in the show. But is interesting is that Nolan's actually a, a published author, that this is how he covers his his trips away and things like that, that he's this author that goes on work trips all the time and he writes novels about superheroic adventures on spy things ah. to um, to make the amazing life that they have. That's cool. Another thing that I, um, when we talk about the idea of characters that do and characters that don't make an effort to conceal their secret identity, I think it makes sense when we consider the character's intentions, right? Uh, I think that it makes sense for characters like Spider-Man, uh, you know, who yeah. is a kid, 
And all he wants, right, all he wants out of life is to be able to be a normal kid, to have a normal life, you know, to be able to get with Gwen Stacy or later Mary Jane, um, you know, live a normal life, be happy. There's, there's a stay. number of people he wants to get yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. Um, but unfortunately, he is not able to live a normal life because he had the accident and he got the powers. He had that, you know, dying message from his Uncle Ben, with great power comes great responsibility. So he knows that he, when he's faced with those times or those situations where he has to make a choice about whether to intervene and save people and do good, that he just kind of feels like he has to. He has to, so he does, because he doesn't know how to do it any different, right? He, he is a person, is incapable of seeing something happen that he's got the power to stop and then just walking away from it. Um, but all he wants is to live a normal life, right? But I don't think, and you know, this is subjective and just opinion, I don't think it makes sense for the characters that choose to be all about their crime-fighting or supervillain-fighting um, destinies and ways of life, right? Like um, the Bruce Waynes, the Clark Kents, the Barry Allens, um you know, the Tony Starks, uh, the, the Nick Furies. Um, I don't think it makes any sense for them to worry about concealing their secret identity. Do you know what I mean? Because they, I mean, they, they might have a slight, you know, wistful desire of wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to do this stuff every day and put my life on the line every single time I go out to, you know, do what I do for a living. But that's their lives. That's the life that they chose and that they went full, um, they dived headlong into. And I think that it makes a lot less sense for them to have secret identities as opposed to the Peter Parkers. But you know what? There may be a lot of people who disagree with me. Let me know if you, you know, throw any comments to us on Facebook if you disagree with me and I'll happily hear you out. I, I don't disagree with you. I think where the whole secret identity thing comes from is the basically not the original superhero, but the Scarlet Pimpernel who is a, such an archetype for people like Batman. Um, if people haven't come across The Scarlet Pimpernel, this was a series of novels written by the Baroness Orksky uh, way back when, probably the 19th century, I want to say. Essentially, a nobleman of England who was saving uh, French nobles from the, the French Revolution and smuggling them out to England. And of course, he needed a secret identity because if they knew who he was but he would also be killed. It was like a, a huge problem. And his persona as a noble was this fop, this people that no one took seriously, that he was just this this cad and everyone's like, oh, you're a gadfly. You don't, no one could think that you're this, this dashing hero that runs around saving lives, um, which of course then becomes Bruce Wayne and it becomes the shadow and a whole bunch of other superheroes through the, the 30s and 40s, because that's kind of what they were modeled on. That's who they what people had read as they were growing up and that's not necessary when it comes to other particular when we could get we could get into the superhero thing oh the secret identity but like like mike said come to the comments if you disagree with what we're saying because <laughs> um, there is a there's a lot to get through in this episode and I mean, this this isn't really the best time to talk about secret identities because there's other stuff in future episodes where it's more of a, an issue, I guess. But this also scene kind of develops two things, which I think is key for the series. The first being that Nolan is a Viltrumite from the planet Viltrum, so he's basically an alien and that Mark is also part alien because of this. And secondly, that 
Debbie, Mark's mother and Nolan's wife, is super horny for Nolan. And why wouldn't she be? <laughs> it's the mustache, man. Mm-hmm. It's like the Tom Selleck mustache. And it's just a little thing, but you notice it throughout when you start to notice that she he comes home and it's like he has this pheromone, which is like, so let's get that costume off. Let's go take a shower. Let's go to bed. Hey, let's get on. on. And Mark even comments, like, can you guys just wait? It's like, just just chill. I'm still in the room. Mm-hmm. And it's just this little bit of characterization, which I think make, kind of is an interesting part of... Um, well, the dynamic, and I think we'll get into it later once we get some reveals of the show and some of the darker stuff that's going on. But it also has Mark seeing his dad fly his mother off to Berlin for breakfast mm-hmm. and him trying to get his powers because there is this like heavy weight on him that he does not have the powers yet. And his dad's like, oh, even late bloomers on Viltrum, on Viltrum got him like 18 or so. So you'll be, you'll be fine. It's not like you're coming up to the end of the potential time. But he does this little hop outside after he sees them go he's like i want to fly too and he's just like hopping up and down and it's adorable it is so cute it sure is actually you know what the next scene kind of um kind of proves your theory about the mustache being why debbie's super into nolan well because it's um mark at school talking to his friend william who's obviously gay because he's like oh my god omniman's so hot but it's like yeah the mustache and i'm like I think the line is even, don't get me started on the mustache. Sure, he's hot and all. And that mustache. Uh... It's like the mustache apparently is just this sexual energy that everyone who sees Omni-Man is drawn to. Oh, absolutely. He's, I'm assuming he's got the mustache in the comics as well, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like this iconic thing for... Well, actually, we see. We see a um, little bit later on when Nolan talks about Viltrum... All Viltrum males have this mustache. Right, okay. Here's the, I, I don't know, I don't think it should be called Omni-Man. I think it should be called Mustache Man. And, um, you know, the, the big giant... Mustache Man! Know, the big giant O on his costume, on his chest, should just be replaced by the silhouette of a mustache. And that would surely strike fear <laughs> into villains, but would truly inspire all the, uh, all the good people and all well, the innocents. Villains are a cowardly and superstitious lot, so I think I think you're right. But um, I think it may also look a little bit too much like a Batman logo, so we'll see. Definitely. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, for most viewers, um, you know, because most viewers I think would be in my position where they hadn't yet read the comics, and uh, there's a lot yeah. of learning to do for those viewers because this is obviously its own self-contained um intellectual property you know it's a it's a it's in its own universe and setting it's external entirely to marvel and dc and um those uh those set uh those created settings and the large uh, the 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 very good and um the very strong storytelling uh angle that they take on this one is something that i'm a big fan of right it's the idiot uh, aspect is what is what I like to refer to it as. Um, when there is when there is a large amount of information that the viewers have to learn, uh, then it's a very strong storytelling tactic for one main character in the show to be the idiot. That the one main character in the show that you know is on the same level as the audience in that they don't know much about the world. 
either, and they have to learn it for reasons, right? And in this case, the yeah. idiot in the show is definitely Mark, the main character that becomes invincible. Yeah. Um, I mean, yes, he knows um, about his, you know, dad being Omni Man, and he knows about the powers and the way the the world works with the super teams and you know the um, the the Earth Defense. Um, the Glo Global Defense Agency. Um, he knows all of that, right? Yeah. But uh, he well, kind of has some of it. Yeah. yeah, but he and then he kind of has that awakening moment when he starts getting his powers and he has to realize what that really means, what kind of an impact it's going to have, and how having these powers is really going to define uh, the way he lives the rest of his life and the way he makes his choices. Uh, as he enters into adolescence and adulthood, and um, as he and as the audience learns, he's also learning, and um, that's a storytelling technique that you see in a lot of um, different uh, you know shows and books and things. One of the strongest ways that I ever saw it used was in the Dresden Files, the books, where um, the one of the characters, the policewoman Karen Murphy. Uh, she was the idiot because she didn't know about magic and wizards and all that sort of stuff. And he had to teach her. And through the main character teaching her, the, the audience or the readers learnt as well. Um, but they use that very strongly. Yeah. Uh, in Invincible, they use that very strongly with the main character having to learn and the audience getting the opportunity to learn alongside him. Yeah, that audience surrogate is incredibly useful. And to bring it into, a, again, the, the idea for an RPG... When you're introducing, as a as a, someone who runs a lot of games, when you're introducing players into this world, it's really important to give them idea or let them know how these worlds operate. And something like an audience surrogate, I mean, I always like it when it's a low-level group, that they're in a small town that they may have never left in their lives. They might have stories about, you know, this is what the god is like, this is what is over the other side of the hill, this is what the big town is like, but they've never been there everything they're going to encounter is brand new because you to the players it's brand new and you don't want to be having to go oh you've said that really funny thing but actually you would already know that it's the exact opposite mm -hmm. so you want some i think in role-playing games you want the the characters to be as a little bit as dumb as the players are not to say that they're, they're dumb not to say that they're unknowledgeable but just that you want them to be as unworldly as the players are coming into this this adventure. And oh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a cool segue to go from from that awesome point that we just made, not to pat ourselves on the back too much, into the next scene of the episode, which is basically Mark getting the shit kicked out of him. I guess that's what happens at level one when you're starting an adventure and you have no idea what's going on. You get your ass kicked quite regularly. And this scene also introduces us to Amber, who's going to be a bit of a, a player through through the series as well. Um, and essentially, Amber's getting hassled by some guy, Todd, who Mark stands up to um, and then gets basically beaten up because Todd's massive. And Amber saves him by... That incident happens before the awakening of his powers as well, just to set that relationship between yeah. bully and bullied. But yeah, because yeah, there's this dynamic shift halfway through and there is this huge element of power we'll get into it in a little bit because there's stuff i want to say about it but that yeah todd beats mark up and amber basically kicks todd in the nuts and he runs off crying um 
And we're kind of seeing that Mark is this downtrodden dude. The next scene has him at Bergamot at his job and he's just kind of dragging the trash out. And I love that this is when he gets his powers. It's not like some sort of fight. It's not some sort of emergency. It's like, cool, I am throwing the trash in the garbage. I'm going to throw the next bag and it just goes up and up and up and up and it goes into space. And it's, it's gone. He gained his powers when it was time to take out the trash. <laughs> that's that's a good one. And then, and then we um, and then we have a a repeat a repeat of an interaction with that same bully after he gains his powers, and it's yeah. a very interesting interaction because the the bully goes up to him and you know he you know he mouths off and he goes to. You know, he holds him up against the lockers and he threatens him. And Mark kind of takes the pacifist angle, you know, and he says, you know what? Just hit me. Go ahead. Just do it. Oh, no, no, dude. There's other stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, so, you know, the the bully kind of, you know, throws the um, throws a few punches and, you know, feels like he's hitting a brick wall and runs away in shame. And, um... Mark has the uh, Mark manages to get the pacifist victory, and uh, super super embarrasses uh, that bully at the same time. Oh no, dude! There's so much stuff going on in that scene. There is. It is so messed up. All right, so one thing that we haven't said. Well, we jumped a little bit ahead because that's such a cool bookend again of these these two scenes with the with Todd. Between then, Mark has got his powers, and. He's told his family and they're really pleased. And there's this shift in Nolan as soon as Mark's like, oh, I got my powers today. Like, oh, I got my first pubic hair sort of stuff. And Nolan kind of shifts and is like, are you sure? And he just gets super serious. And it like kind of snaps out of it a little bit. But something has definitely like changed in his brain. There's like a switch that's gone on. And he's like, yeah, cool. We'll start training. I'll teach you how to be a superhero and all this stuff. And Mark does a little bit of a flying thing. And there's like a little bit of an adventure. But the first time they're actually practicing and learning to fly and sparring together, Nolan just fucking clocks him, like hits him right in the chest. And he goes down. He's like panting on the ground. That is a painful place to be punched, if I might add. Oh yeah, that just right in the solar plexus. Oh yeah, in my days as a former pro wrestler many years ago, um, I've I've been clocked in that exact spot in the solar plexus, um, and it is exceedingly unpleasant. <laughs> um, I, I, oh. I I sympathise with poor Mark when he when he hit the ground after getting super punched uh, right in the solar plexus for sure. Oh, and then Nolan's just kind of comforting, like he doesn't even comfort him. He just kind of sits down and just goes. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hit you so hard. And this is like the whole theme of their entire relationship, the entire aspect of this family thing. It is an abusive family. Everything about their relationship is incredibly abusive. And we're going to, I'm going to go in through this every single time because this is a messed up dynamic. The fact that he hits his son that hard, it's a little bit like, are you going to be able to take it as a superhero? Because I've got to, you're going to get a lot of punches but also a little bit of like, you better fucking take this. And then the next scene is Mark at the school getting beaten up by Todd. It's not even him taking the pacifist route. He just wants to feel power. He's just had the shit kicked out of him by his dad. And now he's like, you can hit me. It doesn't even hurt. This is how tough I am now. Mm. It's like, I'm just trying to feel something and you're not even worth my time. It is like this complete shaming of Todd. 
but it's also a little bit like this self-destructive behavior. It's like if Mark wasn't a superhero, I feel that he would have done the same thing. He still would have been like, I'm just going to fucking take it. I'm just going to let you hit me because I have just been told by my parental figure that I do not matter, mm. that I am not strong enough and not good enough. I like that point. I like that point. It, 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 hadn't, it had not occurred to me in that regard. Uh, what, what a good way. What a good we're, thing. We're going deep. Yeah. What a good thing to use, though, that kind of situation. What a good thing to possibly use for Dungeon Masters to roll with, uh, with some important interactions in a tabletop game. Um, when, when, you know, obviously when D and D characters reach a certain level, they're way more powerful than all the, uh, townspeople and innkeepers and, uh, you know, civilians that are all around them. But what if they have some very important encounters with, you know, um, some important characters that, you know, the player characters in the level of power that they have, they completely, completely overwhelm and outclass these uh, these people. But wouldn't it be an interesting situation um, to put some, you know, some player characters in where they're forced to make some choices that are going to have consequences around having to deal with the, um, you know, some some tough situations, whether it's with aggressors or you know, with uh, with desperate burglars or something like that, that they're way more powerful then. Uh, you know, I mean, you would obviously need to avoid, you know, your murder hobo characters, you know, that I've, I've seen, I've seen a few players in my time that are very happy to kill everything that crosses their path. And, you know, there's no... Um, oh, yeah, you need to curate it for their, your players. Yeah, yeah. but um, I, I'm, I'm lucky enough to regularly play with uh, with a group of, you know, people that... Um, do you have emotional investment and, um, you know, put a... Oh, stop. He's talking about me. <laughs> and do put, you know, um, a level of, uh, you know, their characters have their codes of ethics and morals that uh, they will, they will you know, they will be true to. And, you know, don't, don't just have a bunch of crazy murder hobos that are just all about, like, attack everything. Everything is worth the XP and the loot. And, uh, you know... Combat yeah. is the only thing that matters. You know what I mean? If you've got a good group of players that are that are good with their um, good with their emotional investment, and uh, you know that that kind of an encounter, uh, you know, would be a very very potentially a very strong um, storyline moment for those kinds of players. I think. Oh, I, I completely agree because I think there's a lot of discussions in this episode between characters that develop their characters a lot further. And that they're not the the big moments of a victory. It's not them going, I've defeated this villain and that made me realize something. It's about them talking things out. Like the next scene up that we see, Mark goes, like he's just taken the hits from Todd who's run off, but he's like, I need something to punch. And he flies, he puts on this like makeshift costume and goes out and he finds some people robbing a bank, um, supervillain Titan, like kind of the only superpowered person there and he goes like yeah i'm gonna take these people on and beats them up and like defeats them it's like first superhero fight he beats them and then omni-man shows up like nolan comes and he's like you look ridiculous this is stupid you've got to come on look we'll, we'll go talk this out and they speak on a roof and mark just breaks down he's like no hit me again i'm tough now i can do this hit me what hit me now do it i wasn't ready before now i am i can take it Come on. I'm not gonna hit you. You never hit me before, okay? It scared me. It wasn't too much. I could take the pain. I'm strong. I know you are. No, you don't! 
I know you think I can't do this. Hit me and let me prove you wrong. Please, Dad. Please just hit me. And it's just this begging of punch me in the face, Dad. And it's like, and Nolan seems to realize this. He's like, oh, that's not, that's not what I was trying to teach you with that. I'm trying to teach you to be strong. I'm not trying to teach you to be tough. And this, this, whole, this whole thing, but oh my God. But again, it's not the beating up the superhero. It's the conversation afterwards. It's that emotional investment. It's that moment of character building that isn't about, I defeated the monster. It's about thinking about, well, what does it actually mean? Why, why did I even have to fight the monster in the first place? What did I learn from that experience? Mm-hmm. You know, like a good allegory from that. And, and this, is, this is something that I'm... I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just going to repeat something that I've heard. Um, I think it might have been uh, Joe Manganiello um, that did a bit of a D&D um, interview. And, uh, you know, they were saying, how do you, I think one of the questions that was asked was, how do you um, create some level of emotional investment or, you know, emotional consequences for players and their actions? And he put forward the idea of the fact that you don't always treat uh, typical monsters as typical monsters or typical encounters as typical encounters. Like imagine if, you know, your Dungeons & Dragons group is travelling along in the wilderness and uh, they get attacked by a small group of, you know, hill giants, uh, you know, that, that are looking a bit crazed and a bit emaciated and, you know, they're clearly attacking the players for food. But, you know, it's, it's a life or death thing. The players will fight. They'll beat the, the hill giants and that's totally fine. And then they'll, you know, put them down. They'll go about cleaning up and gathering whatever loot they might have or whatnot. And then in the distance, they might hear those with passive perception of 12 or more might hear the sound faintly in the distance of a hill giant infant screaming and crying that no longer has its parents to come back to anymore. You know? Yeah. So you're right. It's the thing that comes after it's uh it's not always what happens in the moment but definitely what comes after i think that uh has that strong uh emotional impact i reckon yeah i I totally agree that's the best type of encounter in my opinion that encounter to me is when characters make a choice this is something i learned from i think the the dungeon master's guide in like second edition that they they had a whole list of like four different things and said which one of these is an encounter and like they had you know the rogue discovers that someone's stolen his his knife so he pulls his sword on the fighter stuff like that or a trap falls down and kills the the npc and it's like and there's another one where you see a cloud in the distance do you approach and it's like that last one is the encounter because it's about player choice and the one the example you just gave you fought giants that's not the encounter deciding what to do with the infant that you just orphaned that's your encounter. Spot on. Oh yeah, fuck. We we just we we won podcasting with that sentence. Fuck yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Um, yeah. So it's a um, you know it's kind of weird talking about it at such length because technically speaking, you could it, there's there's an arguable case to say not a lot happened in the episode of episode one. Not a lot happened, right? No. Um, but then again, arguably, the opposite could be said is that there was so much that happened that, uh, you know, just kind of, you got to shine a bit of a spotlight on it. But um, of all the things that happened, have you got a favorite bit? I, I do have a favorite bit. I want to say that 
what you were saying just then, that it feels like nothing much happened, but then everything also happened, that's Robert Kirkman to a T. That this is just kind of how he rolls. Hindsight viewing is is a big thing here, yeah. I do have a favourite bit, and it's actually the next scene. Um, So, yeah, good good props to you for picking what my favourite bit was going to be. And it's really interesting because... Well, actually, not the next, not quite the next scene, because the next scene is where Nolan takes him to see the costume maker. Mm-hmm. Um, takes him to see the costume maker, who was voiced by Mark Hamill. It's like, fuck yeah, Mark Hamill's in a in a superhero show. Why not? I love the the cast that they've got for this I show. Can never pick. I can never pick Mark Hamill. He's such a good voice actor. I can never pick his voice out. I know how often he's been the Joker, uh, but in anything else, like I can never pick his voice. He's so good at it. No, he's a mate. I mean, he's a he's an icon for a reason. But anyway, they go and see this guy who basically says, you've got to pick an identity, figure out who you are, and then I can make a suit. And you want to have something that is iconic. And that's, again, this is kind of what Mark needs to find out. He's trying to pick his identity. And the scene after that is my favorite one. Because this is when Debbie is kind of going around the house. There's going to be a whole vein of Debbie and closets um in this in this show which is something i've only noticed as i'm writing up notes for it it's like debbie seems to be around closets a lot i'm not sure if that's some sort of metaphor but we'll find out so she's walking around she hears some noise from outside and she goes out and she finds mark practicing his landings which he's really fucking bad at and i love how bad he is at landings i think he says like i'm getting used to crashing into the ground i'm actually getting used to this a little that's not good you you shouldn't get used to that you should just learn to land but they have this conversation, like Debbie and Mark have this conversation because she tells him to go inside and he's just like, make me. And she says to him, do you think, does that make you feel strong? Saying, because you could easily overpower me. And she has this whole whole thing about who is he? That it used to be her and him. It used to be those two. And there was this crazy, wacky superhero that lived with them. And now that he's got powers, suddenly it's crazy, wacky superhero hijinks and the normal person who lives with them. And this scene really kind of changes how Mark sees everything. Everything he's talked with his dad about, that really hasn't worked. Talking with his mother and getting that idea, getting realizing that he's got to stay normal. He doesn't have to be this superhero. He needs to be him and he needs to be the best version of him that there is. And this is my favorite scene because of that. It's really funny. I'm looking through what some of my favorite scenes from this show are, and they're always really quiet moments like this. It's not like the massive punch-up at the end. It's just the little character moments of them showing actual genuine affection for them, for each other. I like it. I want to get your thoughts on this scene as well, because it feels like one that a lot of people are going to brush over. But yeah, what what do you think of it? Do you think this is like the, the highlight of the episode, or is it just me? Um, it's definitely a strong point. Um, you know, for me, I think that I look at that scene as a scene that had to happen, uh, you know, because there obviously needed to be something to put, uh, Mark on the right, um, moral pathway, right? That had to come from someone or it had to come from something. So I think it is a scene that kind of had to happen and, you know, if if any of us were to sit down and write about a good-natured kid getting superpowers and uh, needing to needing to learn the right code of ethics and or have the have the right moral aspect, we would need to put something in there about where does he get that lesson from? You know, 
So it, yeah. it's a scene that kind of had to happen, and I think that any any one of us, if we were to sit down and write something about it, we would have to put a scene in there that does that, right? Um, but at the same time, it's also a scene that needs to be done well and uh, needs to be done right. And when and it's a scene that it's it's real strength, I think, is in the fact that. As you mentioned, a lot of people are going to brush right past it and not think that it has a great deal of significance to it, right? But that's actually a strength of the scene because it's not beating you over the head with it, you know? It's it's not Uncle Ben, you know, telling, you know, Peter Parker, hey, with great power comes great responsibility or anything like that. Um, it's something that is subtle enough that... A lot of people won't really see it for what it is, you know, that are uh, that um, that almost mandatory uh, moral education moment. Uh, but they will kind of watch it and absorb it, understand it, and like it. And then it just becomes a, a, like a, the backbone of uh, of Mark's, you know, choices and whatnot moving forwards. Mm. Um, so it's a fantastic scene because it's done that way. I think that you know that there was there's an opportunity for it to have turned a lot of people off if they'd have done it wrong and if it had been too yeah. overt. I think, yeah. So, um, a fa- yeah. fantastic scene for sure. But not your favourite is what I'm getting from this. No, you could probably guess what my favourite is. I have a feeling your favourite is still to come. So let's not yeah, move yeah. forward because the next scene is actually Mark and his dad playing catch, throwing the ball all the way around the world, uh, which is kind of fun. But this is where Mark gets the idea for his his name, Invincible. Because his dad's like, hey, teenagers think they're invincible. But Mark, you actually are invincible. And, well, I think we'll come back to, to what else Nolan's saying in this, this scene a bit later. But this is kind of the two things of his parents. That he gets his powers and he gets his identity of this is the power you have from his dad. And then he gets his responsibility from his mother. So you kind of need these two scenes back to back. Spot on. So you kind of, the, the, the two sides of the coin, that's something that you're going to have a lot of trick, a lot of trouble getting into a, an RPG or a tabletop game. But then Mark kind of realizes, oh, I can be a hero. And we see him flying around the city and there's like a laser blast and there's a, a villain that he beats up and he's like, yeah, I'm invincible. And that's when we get to the credits. And this is when I think we get at your favorite scene. So do you want to tell us about it? Guardians of the Globe, you get a bit of an introduction into who they all are and what their, uh, what their daily secret identities are. Or, you know, in the case of Darkwing, just the fact that he fights crime during the day, fights crime all the fucking time with his, you know, Batman-style costume and his Batman-style toys and whatnot. I will point out, there's a whole thing with Darkwing, which I'm pretty certain is from the comics. He, he lives in a city where it is always night. Oh, really? That a supervillain did a thing and it is always night in this city. How about that? So, yeah, he's... <laughs> it's great. It's great. Um, anyway. So, you you know, and then, you know, you got the... you got the Martian Manhunter adjacent one. You've got the... Uh, you've got the Mr. Fantastic adjacent hero. You know, you've got... Mr. No, dude, it's Martian Manhunter. The stretchy guys, uh, totally Mr. Fantastic. Yeah, it's Martian Manhunter. No, he's Martian Manhunter. Is that one of Martian Manhunter's powers? Yeah, he can shape change. He can do go in basically Green Ghost and, and Martian Man 
the two characters from the Guardians of the Globe, you join them together, you get Martian Manhunter. Okay. I, I, I didn't realize that Martian Manhunter could do the stretchy stuff, but there you go. Okay. Um, by, by the way, you know, I'll, I'll forgive, um, I'll easily <laughs> forgive uh, any comic book writer uh, that struggles to find ideas of original superheroes because it would be fucking hard to try oh, yeah. and think of an original superpower nowadays with the oversaturation, but that's okay. But either way, you get a bit of a... Robert Kirkman makes a good attempt. He makes a good attempt to it on this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you get all these... You get these mini introductions to get to know each of these characters of the uh, of the Guardians of the Globe a little bit more. And then they all respond to a distress signal, which takes them back to their hideout. So they all go in there and they all go, all right, hey, uh, who called the emergency alert? And everyone's just kind of looking around going, didn't you do it? No, didn't you do it? No, it wasn't me. And then Omni Man just shows up and fucking kills everyone. Yeah. <laughs> and there is yeah. a fairly long, drawn out, I mean, for a post credit scene, um, a reasonably long and drawn out fight scene. Oh, it's like 10 minutes. Where he very brutally and very violently, very bloodily, um, murders every single one of them. Talking about, you know, decapitation, uh, crushed heads. Um, being thrown so hard against the wall or floor that in the uh, you know Darkwing just red mists almost you know, um, and it, this is going back to the start of this podcast episode where I talked about how that opening fight scene where the good guys did the good guy fight and they took the bad guy to jail and they protected all the innocents they protected everybody's lives including the bad guys, then this just flips it on its head. Because the strongest and the most powerful of all the good guys shows up and just fucking murders every other good guy on the roster of the the, the, the most powerful superhero team in the world. And um Yeah, viscerally in some cases. Oh, oh yeah, don't let your kids brutal. watch this scene. You know, this is the kind of scene that would turn a cartoon rated R easily. Um but so, so this, all the expectations and you know the that was set from seeing that first scene and you know, learning about the, you know, Omni-Man and the lessons that he taught, um, you know, Mark throughout the throughout the episode and all of that, just throw it out the window. Because just watch Omni-Man just walk in and just absolutely serial killer mode everybody in there, all the other superheroes. And he's powerful enough to do it, 1v7. Um, so... Well, okay, see, this is, a, this is a thing that I think... he He's in doubt whether he can win this. Because there are a number of moments where he is on the ropes yeah. and they're beating him up. And it's, this is like when he's already killed Grey, Green Ghost and Darkwing and like all the, the normal ones. And it's just War Woman, uh, the Immortal and the Martian Man left and they're beating him. Mm-hmm. Like they've wrapped him up and it's only kind of because he's able to grab and kill Martian Man that he's able to get three and that's when he gets the other two. But it's like, there's a moment when they could still win it and this is what really fucking bugs me about the scene because this is the perfect tragedy where these these are my heroes. These are my Justice League who get murdered in front of me because they just, they're just not that, there's that moment when they could have won and they don't. Oh, fuck. The two main advantages he had going in, firstly, obviously, there was the element of surprise. Secondly, Although they were fighting against him, I don't think they, they weren't actually trying to kill him. He was out there trying to kill them, 100%. But yeah. when they were taking the fight back to him, it was more a case of, we've got to take him down and figure out what's going on. Whereas he was just like, yeah. I win if you're dead. You know? 
Um, you, you, you well, 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 that's how it starts. Yeah, you know, their angle is like, we've got to figure out what's going on. This, you know, he's got to be being mind controlled or something. You know, he would never do this. We'll take him down. But he's just like, oh, there are no rules for me in this fight. I just got to kill you guys. I win if you're dead. That's the beginning and the end of this. Um, but the, the reason that's my, my that, the reason that is my favorite bit is just because it absolutely came out of nowhere, and that is something that. If we if we didn't have that scene, if we did not have that scene, this would be half the show that it is. This would just be any yeah. other cookie cutter superhero cartoon, um, comic book adaptation, you know, dime a dozen. Because we had that scene, and everything else that flows on from it in the episodes that follow, this sets it apart uh, from every other mainstream comic book or cartoon uh, superhero genre thing ever. Um, so it, it's a very, very important scene and it's my favorite because it actually made me think and believe, okay, this show is going to be something special, you know? Um, not saying that I like to see that kind of violence. I don't, you know, violence has never been a big thing for me. Um, but just the fact that there is something in there that sets it apart from everything else, uh, made that my favorite scene for sure. Yeah, it is. It's this shock value, and honestly, I think the gore is over the top. I've watched it a number. I mean, I knew it was coming because I'd read it. I've seen it. Tw- Actually, I've seen it. I saw it the first time, and even taking notes for it, watching it with with you early today, I looked away. I can't. I can't see it anymore. It's just. It's too much for me. So that's saying something. If if you are squeamish, don't watch this scene. Just be aware that Omni Man kills everyone. Uh, and there will be flashbacks to it later in the in the show. So the, another interesting thing about this scene to me is that he kills Red Rush first. He kills the speedster. And before that, Red Rush was kind of moving everyone out of the way. He saves the immortal. He kind of senses Omni-Man coming in and saves the immortal before... Because he's trying to take out the immortal first, who seems to be the biggest hitter. And once he kills Red Rush, that's when the others are like, oh no, this is serious. But it's also if... Red Rush is taking out everyone, if moving everyone else out of the way, they've still got a chance. Mm-hmm. That there's still that that element of when we work together as a team, we're going to beat this guy. And th- this is kind of spoilers, but when you're wanting to be the most powerful person in the universe or in, in the world, you take out the people who can actually defeat you. Mm-hmm. And you do it by surprise. And that is what Omni-Man just did. And it's even more interesting that this scene doesn't occur in the comics, well, for like three books. Mm. That we get like a whole bunch of other storylines. And even then, we don't know who killed the Guardians for another couple of books. A very important factor of when he went and did this in the show, in the cartoon, when he went and killed all these other heroes, there is no explanation given to the audience at all. It just happens and you see it happen, but you have no idea why. So and then end. Great. Tune in next week, everyone. <laughs> spot on. Because because that's what you you got to come back. I mean, I love that Amazon released these first three episodes together as a block, so you do get this shock at the end of the episode, and then you can immediately watch the next one and see the fallout of it. Mm-hmm. Because you're just like, I I I got to know what the hell, what the fuck just happened. Yep. Very much the uh, you know we, we we mentioned the red wedding for Game of Thrones earlier. And this was a um, oh. this is a very similar thing where it was a uh, a very powerful and seemingly completely random 
uh, massive act of exceeding brutality. But it made everybody want to watch more. Hell yeah. Uh, which we'll get to. I do want to say one more thing because we got to the end of the show. Hey, well done us. Hope you enjoyed made it. Made it. Not like most of the Guardians of the Globe did. <laughs> No, none of them made it. God, even just one of them made it. Anyway, that <laughs> this is a great way to introduce a villain to your campaign. That you have, maybe you don't actually have them on screen for it, but you know about the these great heroes who have defeated all the evils and then someone has come along. Maybe it's someone that they fought in the past. Maybe it's someone that's new and they have just wiped the floor with the heroes. And now your party who are level one, well, that's the big bad. Mm-hmm. you got to train up. you got to do things to try to stop this person. You've got to build your way up to fight that ultimate evil. The, the person, you don't even know why they're doing these things. You just know that they've killed the heroes that would be the ones to normally defeat them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a great storytelling technique. When you want someone, you want to do a hero's journey and you want to go from the very beginning through to I'm punching out a god. This is how you do it. You get rid of anyone else who could potentially do it instead. Mm-hmm. it's heavy yeah yeah this is i mean it's a it's a great episode i feel that i'm glad that they had this reveal in the first episode because oh going into knowing this show and knowing that nolan is this psychopath i was just like i i don't think i can hold it for three episodes i want them to tell me really early on that i want everyone to know this so i can talk about it almost immediately rather than like at the end of season one and even the the poster has him and Mark, and it's like, he looks pretty sinister in that. But one of the things we're going to be doing on this show, well, we've got pick your, the character you turn into a player character or an NPC for your game. I've got my one in mind, but I want to hear Mike's first, Mm -hmm. because Mike's um, pretty intuitive, and he always comes up with interesting character concepts. So who do you pick from this episode, Mike? Stretchy Man. I will totally make... Stretchy man, Martian man. Yeah, I will totally make a character that had the ability to uh, stretch and elongate or contract his uh, physical body just like elastic or rubber. Um, you yeah. know, so all of his abilities would be obviously 100% physical, right? Um, so there wouldn't be uh, there yeah. wouldn't be any magic or um, psionic or psychic, nothing like that, right? Um, but you know, he would have the abilities of doing things like binding enemies by wrapping around them and binding and restraining. If he, if they fail a strength check, um, he'd be able to reach over long distances. Like he would have a 15 foot reach to grab something off a table or flip a switch or a lever to turn off a trap or something like that. Or, you know, flick someone on the ear from 15 feet away and they'll never know who it was. Um, you know, be able to morph his shape. Um, so not, not necessarily be able to look like other people, um, but, you know, he'd be able to do things like fit through sewage grates or squeeze through cracks in a mountainside that most other people would need to squeeze through. He can just almost flow through like water. Um, you know, he, he would have some level of resistance from physical attacks, um, maybe not piercing, but, um, you know, against things like blood, actually only bludgeoning damage. Um, he would have some level of dis- um, some level of resistance against bludgeoning damage, just because he can absorb the impacts of blunt weapons like rubber or elastic. Can um, he would probably still have some problem with slashing and piercing, of course. But um, a, a, a player character um, 
might be a bit much for it. So I, I feel like it might be an NPC yeah, do you reckon, creature. Do you reckon it'd be an NPC? Yeah. Um, yeah. So an NPC creature cool. or monster um, that, you know, the, the party would encounter. Um, you know, likely, most likely a humanoid that they might not recognize as being a, a creature unto itself. Um, but yeah, certainly something with the abilities of that physical, um, morphology would be the one that I'd throw in for sure. There is a creature in the wheel of time books. There's a, a monster that is almost exactly like that. So yeah, I think you've got a, a really great idea there. Mm. Because it, I mean, I say PC, NPC, it doesn't have to be. It can be a monster that you want to use. You just have some sort of creature that you, you want to, some sort of antagonist even. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really cool one. Yeah, I've decided to go with Red Rush. <laughs> the Russian speedster. Yeah. Um, who we have a scene with him and his girlfriend who he's unable to connect with because every 30 seconds he like dashes off to try to save a, a, a bus of full of kids or defeat a supervillain or while she's still in the middle of a sentence. And he's like, All my interest? Olga, please. You can't see things how I do. My perception is just as fast as I am. The briefest conversation with anyone seems like hours to me. It's agony. And then he like kind of wins her back. But there's something, he's really goofy in the way that a lot of speedsters in, in television and in comics are, and that I really enjoy. But he's also the person that gets people out of the way. He's the one that kind of rescues everyone. And he's not a combatant. Like, he's really fast and he'll punch them, but that's kind of it. He's more about, I'm going to save everyone. Mm. And I like that. I think that can work really well as a player character because you're like, yeah, I'm not the, the smartest. I'm not the greatest. I'm not the strongest. But yeah, I'm, I've got your back. I will get everyone out of the way and kind of save the people in danger. I'll be the buffer. I'll be the person who heals when you're down. I will get the civilians out. Um, yeah, I just really like, and I think it works really well as a mentor, as an NPC as well. I think someone who you don't, you kind of disregard a lot of time when you want to be a super powerful player and realize eventually that this is somebody who's integral and really vital to the, the world around them, that they're the support network. Nice. I like it. I, I feel that I'm going to be going... There's going to be a lot of characters like this because I'm realizing a lot of the things that I like about a character show up. And it's going to be tricky because, of course, we see him in, like, three scenes. Yeah. I mean, we this one of this thing about us being picking out our character that we turn into want somebody from our games, we can only pick one, and that's it for the series. We can't pick this guy again. Well, I can't because he's dead. <laughs> uh, You'll never have another episode to pick him out of. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so is yours, actually. It it really helps. This is the only chance we've got to, to pick them, so we may as well pick the good ones. Yeah, definitely. All right, so we want to know your favorites as well and who you turn um, into a player character for your games. Uh, but we're going to wrap it up there. Hey, we got through the first one. Um, rate us, review us, share us with your friends. Subscribe. We're coming out weekly. We're going to get this done. Mm-hmm. Come chat with us, and uh, I look forward yeah. to uh, to covering the rest of this amazing series. Yeah, next week we're going to be looking at episode two, which I've forgotten the title, but I'll introduce it um, at the start of the next, next time we're on here. So until then, uh, thank you for listening. Take care of yourself. Good night.